well, you might have noticed that something is different up here on the stage. <laughs> Nathan, he grew a foot and cut his hair. <laughs> no, what you're noticing is there's an aircraft carrier on the stage now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let me explain it just a little bit. First of all, it's a rescue. You know, it was going to be discarded by the, the church that we came from, and so we went and rescued it. Uh, and second, you know, I figured we're, we're pretty cool. Most of us are pretty cool with uh, our doctors choosing what kind of stethoscopes they use and our plumbers choosing their wrenches and janitors choosing mops. So we can let the old preacher choose a, a pulpit, right? I mean, come on. Third, but the question may be, why is it so big? Our pastor's already big enough. We don't need to give him a place to hide. We need to fat shame that guy so he gets trimmer. I tell you, it ain't going to work. I'm already married. The deal's done. I got no, no motivation for that. Well, here's maybe the real reason. In the Protestant Reformation, you could go into any church across Europe as the Reformation was moving, and all you had to do was open the door and look up front, and you could tell whether or not it was a Reformation church or a Roman Catholic church. And you know how you knew? Where was the pulpit? If it was on the side, it was still a Catholic church. The main thing that they were going to do was this, was the Lord's Supper, because that was going to give grace to you. The word of God being preached didn't really matter. A Protestant church put the pulpit in the middle, and they put the Lord's Supper over on the side, because that wasn't the, the primary element of worship. It was the word of God being held forth. So, if we can be a little symbolic, and we don't necessarily always have to be symbolic, because you could end up one day having to whisper in an attic and have church like that, and we could still have the word of God be central. Amen? But until that time, what, what, a, what a, a something like this shows, if it's just a piece of furniture, is that we are a people under the word of God that we're not under somebody's opinion, we're not under somebody's personality, we sit under the word of God. That's the intent behind it. So, with that explained, let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful to sit under your word because we need truth. We need to know what the truth is. We live in a day swirling with lies and half-truths and misdirections. So, help us to see and to know the truth and to embrace the words of your son as he was on death row before Pilate the governor and said that he came to testify to the truth. And that pagan man, Pilate, didn't even know what the truth was. He asked, what is truth? And Father, we know that your word is truth and that's what sanctifies us. That's what makes us more like Christ. That's what gives us eternal hope. So Father, bless our service this morning that it's serving you, worshiping you, not us. To your glory, to your name be the glory and not ours. Lord, bless this time in Christ's name. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're picking back up in the story with the woman at the well and where we left her off before we took kind of a, a pause on what Jesus told her. We left her off. She was running all over town telling everybody about Jesus. That's where we left her. And Jesus had just given a loving and clear gospel confrontation to her and it was seemingly bearing fruit. Today we're going to see how that story wraps up. The woman at the well. Now John's style to remind us is he gives us a lot of long conversations and interactions with one individual. Or maybe just a small group of people. 
that's so helpful for us. And I think that that's God's kindness to us in a lot of ways. And we can look at this and learn a lot from it because most of us are not the kind of person that can stand up in front of a huge crowd and talk about Christ. But all of us know how to talk to one person or talk to a group of friends or a circle of acquaintances. And so John gives us a lot of that. And this is just more of it here at the end of this story. It also shows us the way that these people, when they're confronted with Jesus and the truth of the gospel, how they process it. The, a long look at one interaction lets us get a human perspective to see how they, and this is God's kindness to us as humans by giving us human means to understand what's happening, the profound implications of the gospel and gospel ministry being processed by people, real people. That's what John gives us a look at. So we're going to see John here lighten or, or, or show us, rather, Jesus interacting with the woman at the well. She's still there, but she's not going to say anything. But he's going to talk with the disciples. And then he's going to talk with the villagers at Sychar, that Samaritan town. He's going to talk with them. And we'll see how the born again are to go about laboring for the sake of the gospel. And we'll see how the gospel works in their lives in the first place to birth them again, to make them born again. So our first section here in verse 31 through 34, we're going to look at a passion for laboring in the harvest. That, that's going to come clear as we read, but look at verse 31 with me. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. So the woman at the well at this moment has just run away into the town. She left her water pot at the well, and she's running in telling everybody, this man told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And the disciples are like, well, that was weird. Anyways, we brought food back, Jesus. Here's eat. And, and, and before we blow past this verse, because he's just getting this started, this conversation, remember, Jesus is truly human. He's been walking for days. He still hasn't drinking any water, and he still hasn't eaten any food. And he's going to continue to ignore that. He's truly human, but he's putting it off. Look at verse 32 for why. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. That's just like Jesus and John. He's saying something, to, or speaking in a way to provoke further dialogue. Remember back in chapter 2, he calls himself the temple, and they're like, what? What are you talking about? Remember in verse 3, he tells this brilliant man, you've got to be born again. He's like, how in the world am I going to do that? Then he tells the woman at the well, I have water that makes you live forever. He says those kinds of thought-provoking things intentionally confusing so that they're drawn further into discussion. He's just doing that again here with the disciples. He uses these earthly concepts and they go, okay, how did you get food? We went away to get food and you haven't done anything but sit at this well. The same reason that the woman's like, how are you going to get the water out of the bottom of living water? You don't have a bucket. Or the, how can you be a temple? You're a human body. He's drawing them into further discussion through physical realities to deeper spiritual realities. Verse 33. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? They, they don't get it. They miss it. But now they're talking about what Jesus wants them to be talking about. What kind of food is he talking about and who gave it to him? They're talking about what he wants them to be talking about. Verse 34. Now Jesus can dive in with it. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's what my food is. Before we dive into what he said, what is food? 
food is necessary, right? It's also enjoyable because it can be delicious and you can have those things. And if you think about the boiling our lives down to it, our lives revolve around consuming and obtaining food. I mean, if you don't have to eat, then why are you going to work? You got to eat. I mean, our lives really do revolve around it. Our schedules do. We have lunch breaks. We all go home for dinner. I mean, we revolve around it. If we don't eat, we can't, we don't have strength. We don't have vitality. And Jesus says that the Father's will is his food. Doing God's will, that's his strength and vitality and joy because delicious food is enjoyable. He's saying here to his loving disciples, or he's saying here to his disciples in a loving way what he said in a rebuking way to Satan when Satan was tempting him in the wilderness. Do you remember that? Matthew 4, verses 3 and 4. And the tempter, Satan, came and said, Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what sustains life is every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he said it in a rebuking way towards Satan. He's saying in a loving way towards his disciples right now that serving God according to his explicit word sustains Jesus, not just mere food. Job said something similar. Probably the oldest book written in the Old Testament. Job says in 23.12, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. The, the, in New American Standard translated it, more than my necessary food. I'd rather have God's word than the food I need to live. David the psalmist says in Psalm 19, verse 10 in the second half, he says that your word is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. It's not an uncommon comparison to compare the word of God to food, what sustains life. But Jesus isn't just talking about, I love a book. It's just so fun and engaging. I want to do the will of God, not just know the will of God, but to do the will of God. John 5.30, Jesus says in another way, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He says it again in John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. I, I want to know, Jesus says, I want to know God's will and I want to do it. Knowing and doing cannot be bifurcated. They can't be split apart. True knowing cannot be separated from true action. All true knowledge informs all true action and knowledge without application is no knowledge at all. You really don't understand theology. You don't understand biblical concepts if your life is not changed by them. And I think there's this, there's a misnomer that we perpetuate and kind of goes around in the church. Uh, the big C church, like all over the world, is that, well, you have head knowledge, but no heart knowledge. As if the heart is where meaning is and your head is worthless. But if what you know cognitively doesn't change what you do, then all you are is a Bible triviaist. You know Bible trivia, but you don't actually know the Word of God because to know the Word of God is to be changed by it and to do it. James says in 1.22, but be doers of the Word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So somebody who hears it and remembers it, they're deceiving themselves unless they're doing it. They're deluded, other translations say. Verse 25, for he who knows, for he who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, meaning keeps doing it. 
being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in what he does. You're living an unblessed life if you know biblical truth and you don't do anything about it. And Jesus doesn't do that. He was unable to know God's will and not do it. So he's modeling for us a life submitted to the master. Just in that one verse, verse 34, he has no agenda of his own. He's only seeking the father's wishes. What if all I did was what God wanted? I would study my Bible differently. I would go about my daily, like normal stuff differently. Do my job differently. I would pursue excellence in all things. I would share the gospel incessantly. If that's all I truly cared about, <laughs> that would change everything that you did. If we really lived, if the food of our lives was to do the Father's will. And let's think about this. When was the last time you got so wrapped up into something you forgot to eat? When was the last time? It's been a long time for many of us. Let me, let me just tell you, this is, un, this is the definitive word. These are th three categories of people who forget to eat. Soldiers at war, mothers delivering babies, and kids at Six Flags. That's it. Those are the only people who forget to eat. Everybody else is like, no, we got to stop whatever this is and eat. But Jesus is like, I don't have time to stop and eat. So th there's this, that's this passion for laboring in the harvest. And now we're going to see this process for laboring in the harvest. Verses 34, or 35 through 38. Look at verse 35 when Jesus says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So Jesus is saying, okay, you guys, you're, you're on this food thing. Let's back it up further on the production line. So you, food is, is, comes from somewhere. It comes from the fields, comes from times of harvest. So I'm going to make my illustration a little more pertinent, Jesus says, by talking about the harvest. Let's go from food on the table all the way back to where it comes from. It comes from the harvest. And first century world revolved around agriculture. Everybody moves and shakes based upon the seasons of agriculture. The whole society is tied to those rhythms. And you know you do not miss harvest season. You can't miss harvest season. You know, it used to be even that the kids in the United States, particularly in the Midwest and the breadbasket area, you, you get let off of school for harvest season because it's that important. You can't miss it. Because if you missed it, this high priority, then you don't have food. Not only do you not have food, nobody else has food. So it would take some kind of abhorrently lazy person to miss harvest, to just not be there and not participate. People set their watches by it. And in the agricultural world, it's a given that there's a time period between planting and harvesting. You got to put seed in the ground. You got to wait a little while for it to come and grow up and bear fruit. And then you have the fruit, but what Jesus is speaking here in the spiritual realm, he's pushing those two moments of labor together. That no longer is it like when you're talking about the spiritual realm that you put a seed in and then you just leave it alone. No, you're reaping and harvesting all the time. You're, you're sowing seed and you're reaping a harvest all the time, constantly, concurrently. He's ushering in, Jesus is ushering in this final period of ingathering of his fruit. Sowing and reaping happen all the time as the people of God for us too. Now to prove his point, Jesus just points to the crowd. You see what he says in verse 35? He says, lift up your eyes. And what was happening right before this moment? The woman at the well had run into the town. And it says in verse 
30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. So Jesus has this short moment with his disciples sitting on the edge of that well. And he says, here come the harvest fields. Lift up your eyes. Look, it's happening right now. They're all coming to hear this. So he's saying this as those people, those villagers are coming to him. The seed of the gospel is growing to fruition in front of them. The field is white for harvest. Now is the time to sow and to reap. Jesus says, more important than my physical hunger is my spiritual hunger to do God's will. And look at the fields. They're white for harvest. Nothing takes priority over that. I don't have to eat. I don't have to drink. Uh, it, everything is get the harvest in. Get that food. Get that grain in. You can't miss harvest season. And in an agricultural society, you live for harvest season. There's, a, there's rejoicing. That's why we have so many harvest festivals. That concept just not just the Christian alternative for Halloween. <laughs> like We're celebrating. We have food. It's all here. It's a rejoicing time. It's a joyful time. In verse 36, Jesus says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. So see what we have here going on here in the, in the moment of the woman at the well and Jesus being in Samaria. We have in microcosm what Jesus is doing in macrocosm. You know what I mean by that? So we have a little version of what's happening that Jesus is ushering in all over the place. A little version of reapers and sower. Who's the reaper? The woman at the well. Who's the sower? Jesus. He sows the seed of the gospel into her and now a harvest is coming by her. And we, we know Jesus refers to himself as the sower of the seed because that par very parable, Matthew 13, verse 37, he answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man in the parable of the soils. He's the sower. The woman is already reaping fruit in the Lord's harvest. The fruit of eternal life is coming in. But there's this macrocosm that Jesus is saying, this is happening now. I'm making a bunch of sowers and reapers. They're doing everything together. Verse 36, they may rejoice together. They're not two different crews that don't cross paths. We're all sowers. We're all reapers doing this all together at the same time. We're all engaged in sowing and reaping the gospel. And we rejoice when souls are saved. We don't care who gets the credit for them being saved. We don't care who got to actually reap the fruit and who just did the work of sowing the seed and not really getting to see it. It says that we rejoice together. And that should be obviously true, right? That we shouldn't be like, man, I've been sharing the gospel with that person my whole life. And then so-and-so just strolls in and shares, leads them to Christ. And that, that, would, that would be so awful to experience. One time I got to experience the exact opposite of that. When I was a counselor at camp, this kid came to Christ that week at camp. And when his dad was picking him up, uh, he he had, was walking with his son back to get his stuff, and I was just waiting at the cabin, and this dad just like fell on me and was just, my son became a Christian this week, and he was crying, and he was hugging me, and I was like, I, I would have thought that as a dad, you would have wanted to do that, and you'd be a little bit miffed. I mean, I'm 20 years old, but I don't know anything, but you're, he wasn't. He was just so joyful that his son had been saved. doesn't matter who the Lord uses to do that. And Jesus is saying that time is now. The moment, this moment at the well in Sychar is to that woman's joy and Jesus' joy. We as laborers in God's field, we get to participate in that joyful bounty 
of the harvest coming in of souls being saved. What a joy to see others repent of sin and trust in Christ. Now, the sower and the reaper, when you go back to the macrocosm, all fruit that grows, meaning all people that are saved, is because God has done something in them. So he gets the ultimate credit. So when you talk about the sower and the reaper rejoicing, do you think about this? That God rejoices over saved souls. He does. He rejoices over saved souls. I, I often don't think like that. I think of it as just like a coach that you just did what you were told to do and he's happy with you. Or, or, or that, uh, you know, we, we won the war, but war was brutal and the general is just kind of like, okay, now it's over. But it says he rejoices. He's joyful over that. He wants to save his people. That's a true desire of his. Like adoptive parents when that child is finally taken home. What a joy. There's joy there. I think too often we look at God through human limitations. I know I do. That we put on him what I would be like, but maybe just a little bit better. Like he's a, kind of a superhuman, not totally other than us, which he is. Totally other than us. See, when I get offended, I have two responses typically. I'm either really mad and like don't want anything to do with that person. Or, uh, you know, I'm trying to be really holy and pious and Christ-like and I just immediately forgive them. But what we're seeing in God is that he has wrath towards the sinner and anticipation of joy for their repentance. And I don't have that. I can't be like equally, I want justice to come on that person for them to pay and I want to be friends with them and share meals with them. I can't do that as a human. I'm, I'm too limited. My emotions are so finite. But God can and does do that. That he has righteous wrath upon them. We saw back, remember Jack, back in John 3.36, wrath is upon sinners already. That it's, we're waiting for it to be moved off when we repent and trust in Christ. That he can is sim, like, simultaneously have that joy and then remove that wrath. That there's not like that emotional hang-up or crossover for God. That when rebels become sons, he rejoices. And in verse 37, Jesus says, For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. He's like, that's true. One sows and another reaps. We, we distinguish roles in evangelism missions because we can only do, we can only reap the fruit that God has planted. We can only reap in what God has sowed in hearts, what he has grown. And on a human level, we're always involved in both sowing and reaping. It still holds true. Somebody's doing both of those things, but now we're involved in both. There's not a one crew for sowing and one crew for reaping. That's why a church can't say, well, we, we just do a lot of open evangelism and like, oh, we just do a lot of discipleship. No, we all sow and we all reap. We don't get the choice to do one or the other. We do it both. He, Jesus is probably quoting John or Job 31, 8 there to think about that, but we're, we're concurrently doing that. Sowing and reaping, unlike a first century farmer would understand. And in verse 38, I sent you to reap, Jesus says to them, for what you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Did, did you catch that? We are working in fields that we did not cultivate. We're working in fields that we did not plant or fertilize or nourish. We are day laborers in the fields that God owns. That's what we are. He does all the technical work, all the nourishing care. We just come in and cut fruit and put it in a basket. That's what we do. God has done the work. And you know what that does for the church? It takes the pressure off that we 
God has a kingdom. It needs to come in, and he's not going to do anything about it, so we got to contrive and make this thing work. And if we don't, we have failed, and God is displeased. But when you look at it like this, like you're laboring in fields that aren't yours. Brothers and sisters, you don't own the field. You didn't plant the seed, and you're not fertilizing it. You're coming in and reaping what God has worked and done. Matthew 16, 18, we know Christ says, I will build my church. Not anybody else. I will build it. So pastors don't build churches. Elders don't build churches. Mobilized congregations of all people working for the gospel don't build churches. Jesus builds churches. And if the fields are thin with very little fruit, then we harvest what's there. Day laborers don't correct or rebuke owners of fields. They just harvest the fruit that's there. We just work. That's all we do. God handles the fruitfulness. We put ourselves to the faithfulness. We give ourselves to excellence, and God takes care of success levels, not us. Our concern is not over contriving success. We let God take care of outcomes. We pursue excellence in the work. Think about it like this. If somebody hired you to pick Granny Smith apples, scientifically proven to be the best apples of all time, that's just science. And you, you, all you Honeycrisp people out there, we'll talk later. You go, and they said, go out and pick these green apples, these Granny Smith apples in my fields, and then you come back at the end of the day to the owner of that orchard, and you got a basket full of horse apples. You know what horse apples are? Those lumpy things that grow all around Town Lake, and they, you know, more, they really just you throw them in the water. That's what they're good for. You can't eat them. You come back with a basket full of horse apples, and he says, what are these? You're like, this fruit. He goes, I didn't plant those. Yeah, but... The other guys, I mean, where you put me in the orchard, there just wasn't as, as many apples as like some of the other guys that you had. So then I was like, well, I want a full basket. So I just started putting anything in there that I found. He's like, no, 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 you don't get to do that. I grow Granny Smith apples. These are not Granny Smith apples. These are worthless. And I, who, what do you care about whether or not somebody else's basket is more full than yours? I put you in that quadrant of the orchard. So just harvest the fruit that's there. Don't contrive and make your own fruit. Don't fill your basket up with whatever you want. I didn't send you for horse apples. I sent you for Granny Smith. You just work where I put you and harvest the fruit that I have grown. And that's what we do as the churches. So many <clears throat> groups that call themselves churches just gather in whatever. Horse apples, walnuts, graph apples, doesn't matter. And we call those Granny Smiths. And because the goal is what? Doesn't matter what they believe, who they are, what they think, whether or not they've repented, just get them in the building and then we can count their numbers. That's, that's the end goal. Fill a building. But anyone can fill a building just like anyone can fill a basket. But are they sheep or goats? Are they apples or horse apples? Are they truly converted or are they just spiritual? Because that's what God's after. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 7 Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God gave the growth. We can expend all the effort we want, but what makes seeds germinate and grow? You can water things and they don't grow. You can put them in good sunlight and they don't grow. Something else is making it grow. God makes it grow. God gives the growth. So we can't harvest what God hasn't grown. It doesn't mean we sit on our hands. It doesn't mean we just sit around and do nothing. We work ourselves tirelessly, but we don't contrive results. We just harvest what God has done. That's all we do. 
And we're have, we do that to please our master and to have peace of mind. We are the size that we are because that's what God has determined. Our basket is as full as it is because that's what God has determined. And so we can rest in that. We work ourselves tirelessly for the gospel. We share the gospel with everybody that we come across, but we don't call sh goats sheep. We don't call horse apples Granny Smiths. And that's okay. That's God's decision that he's done. No group of people that God has ever... Uh, no group of people that God's ever blesses has been able to look back and say, look what we did. Huh. Man, we did it. We built that church. I mean, we did all that stuff. All those people got saved because of us. Nobody can look back and do that. God, throughout time, that's been God's MO. No, God has rigged it to where no Christian can, who's truly submitted to God's sovereignty can take credit. When he brings the Israelites into the promised land, this is what he says. Joshua 24, verse 13. I gave you a land on which you had not labored. And cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. He takes them in the promised land and is like, look, I had other people here that were pagans who hated me, and I had them build grand cities and them plant fruitful orchards, and then I just gave it all to you. You didn't do any of this stuff. I did it all. They, they know that. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God I am what I am. This church planting, pastoring, Bible writing apostle doesn't go, well, you know, I did put my time in at seminary, so, you know, and I have a pretty good personality, so it makes sense that I'm successful as I am. He says, by God's grace, I am what I am. And when the church is booming and explosion growth, Acts 2, 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They didn't add to their number. The Lord added to their number. All genuine growth in a church is God's growth. This is the part of the reason why I can't be anything but a Calvinist. God causes the growth of churches, and we pray for him to save people. He saves individuals. They don't save themselves. And we certainly don't save them. God does it. We just labor in his fields. We cut down and bundle the crops that he grew. We are truly working. We are truly sharing the gospel and loving the lowly, but God determines the, the, the width of that. We just focus on the depth. I mean, just think about biblical examples. Peter in Acts 2, he preaches one time, one time, and 3,000 people repent of their sins and trust in Christ. Then just read Jeremiah. We're talking about a book that has 50-some chapters. He preaches for decades, and nobody repents and trusts in Christ. So... Who determines the growth? God does. It's our duty to obey. It's our duty to put forth, to preach and pray and love and stay. And God determines what fruit is born from it. Now, what does Jesus say here, though, in this verse, verse um, 38, when he says, others have labored and you have entered into their labor? Other people have already been working here and you're entering into it. Who first shared the gospel of Jesus Christ in Samaria? Jesus did. And then who's second? The woman at the well. So he's like, guys, y'all, a harvest is coming our way, but you aren't even the first people to get here. And then if you run the clock even further back, the Old Testament writers and the Old Testament prophets, they preached and they scattered seed. So you're entering into labor that wasn't even really yours. And then a, a harvest comes in here in John 4, but a huge one comes in in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered abroad went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs he did for unclean spirits, 
crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So, they had mu- so there was much joy in that city. And then look at verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. Why? Preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. He's <laughs> like, I'm sovereign over all of this. You're entering into labor that other people have done and other people are going to enter into the labor that you have done. When I want to save Samaritans, I do that. And you're just in the lineage. You're in the process, he says. Now here's the product. So that was the passion, the process of laboring. Now here's the product of laboring. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. The woman's testimony convinced people to come to Jesus. Now, here in verse 39, their belief is not saving belief. That's going to come later uh, in the story when we get to about verses 40 and 41 and 42. But their belief is that we believe you, lady, that we should come and learn more. This guy sounds like a prophet. This guy sounds like somebody we need to go and listen to. So they believe to that extent. But what was her testimony? What was so compelling to them that they had to come out, they had to drop everything that they were doing in the middle of the day and come out to the well when it was the hottest part of the day and come listen to a guy they've never heard of? What compelled them to come? This woman saying, he told me exactly how sinful I am. He told me all that I ever did. That's her testimony. Not, he fixed all my life problems. Not, I am no longer poor. Come and hear this guy. Not, no one discriminates against me based on my gender and my skin color. That's not what she said. My reputation has been restored in the community. Come and see the guy who did it. That's not what she says. She says her only words, he told me all the sins I ever did. He told me exactly how sinful I am. See, sociologists and psychologists, is what they do. They tell sinners You wouldn't be so bad if you didn't have such a hard life. But because you had such a hard life, therefore, that's why you're doing these bad things. So the treatment then needs to be therapy. What we can do is we can make you a good person and rectify your wickedness if we just undo all the injustice that you suffered earlier in life. Because you're a victim and somebody else is the perpetrator for all of the sin and the pain in your life. Now, is that what Jesus said to the woman at the well? You're a victim and not a perpetrator. No. He said, your life is a wreck because you are an adulteress. That's what he said. That's all he said. But I am the Messiah. And those who place their faith in me get eternal life. He never promised her a better life in Samaria, but he absolutely promised her eternal life in glory with God. That was the promise. And guess what? That worked. The villagers are all pouring out of town to come and talk to Jesus. Her being confronted with her own sin, her embracing her own guilt, and then turning to Christ and placing faith in him, and then her telling everybody else that worked we don't think that that's gonna work look at verse 40 so when the samaritans came to him they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days so the message that they love so much is that you're a great sinner but jesus is a great savior that's so compelling to them they're like you got to stay here and tell us more 
Like, ro- roll through this again. We need two more days to hear more about you. And what's fascinating to me is that Jesus' message never changes. When he goes in the temple and he's blunt and uh, confusing and, and gets all this attention from the whole Jewish world being there at the same time, who repents and believes? No one. Some people say that they do, but then Jesus knows their minds and their thoughts in 23 through 25 at, in the chapter 2, and they didn't really believe. But then he does the same message, takes that same message from the, the blessed and the, um, the prosperous Jewish people, and then he goes to the poor, ignorant, foolish, pagan Samaritans and take that same message of what happens. The whole town comes to Christ. A revival comes. He doesn't change his message one bit. Look at verses 41 and 42. They verify that fact themselves. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. See, like all true conversions, it can't be dependent upon the messenger. It can't be like, wow, woman at the well is great. Uh, we're, we're good. No, no, no. Everybody has to have an individual interaction with Christ. You got to come to Christ. An unbrokered, unbuffered, unmediated confrontation with Christ. You have to come to him. So we do what Andrew did. We do what this woman did. We say, come and see Jesus. He, this is who it is. We bring people to Jesus. See, now their belief is saving belief. Now they believe Jesus to be who he truly is, Savior and Lord, the Messiah of God. This is a saving faith manifested in them. But why do they believe? We've got to look at that. If we're going to model our methods after Christ, why do they believe? What did it for them? What does it say? Verse 41, many more believed because of his kindness, because of his money, because of his uh, speaking capabilities. No, no, no. Because of his word. That was it. That was the life-altering element that saved them. The word of God. That was it. The word of God brought them to repentance. Jesus is the living word, and he's speaking the written word. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How does somebody have saving faith? By hearing the word of Christ. Jesus didn't have the budget for smoke and lasers and arena rentals. Didn't have any of that. He just spoke the word of God to them. These people don't even see a miracle. Nothing miraculous. Except for what we always overlook is the miracle of a dead sinner being made alive into a son or daughter of Christ. That miracle was enough. Can we, can we trust today that the miracle of the new birth in our lives is enough of a miracle to take to other people and have them trust in Christ and believe? Is that enough of a, of a miracle? Can our mere presence as those who are miraculously born again by the Spirit, coupled with our clear preaching of God's Word, can that be enough? Well, let's look at this. It, it was enough. That woman, what did she know besides Jesus is the Messiah, he told me all my sins, and I've forgiven and given eternal life? She knows nothing beyond that. 
So she's a redeemed person taking the message, simple message of the gospel, and that is enough. That's enough to save people. The most powerful witness we have to a lost and dying world is as the people of God, the redeemed people of God, sinners, all of us, holding high the word of God. That's our great witness. That's all the woman had, and it changed her life, and then it changes the village. A revival breaks out in Sychar because of that simplicity. Now here as we close, notice the Samaritans' converts. What did they say Jesus was? In verse 42, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Savior of who? Not just Jews, not just Samaritans, not just Americans. The world. He is gathering his elect from every corner of the globe and every era of history. They came to understand what John the Baptist said at first in John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Savior of the world. He's the only Savior offered to anyone in the world. If anyone is saved anywhere in the world in any time period in history, it's because of Christ. Because they have come through Christ and Christ alone. The whole story. The, watch the progression of, of John 4, 1 through 42. What does Jesus become? Becomes more of what's true. When he first talks to the woman in verse 9, she just knows he's a Jew. That's true, but that's not all he is. And then in verse 19, she says he's a prophet. That's true, but that's not all he is. And then she says in verse 26, or he says, rather, that he's the Messiah, and she believes that, but that's also not all of what he is. He's, at the end, verse 42, the Savior of the world. Now this whole village knows Jesus in his fullness, and we take away this. Uh, Jesus says, using the same language of harvest in Matthew 9, 37 through 38, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We are like Christ when we go out into the harvest. And, and what's our tool? If we're cutting grain, we have a scythe. If we're cutting fruit, we have scissors or a small little blade. Well, what is our tool to do that? Our tool is just the truth. It's just tell the truth about your great sinfulness, the great distance your sinfulness has put between you and God, and that Christ is a great sinner and can span that chasm by faith in him and bring you to God. We just tell the truth. That's all it is, to bring in the fruit of God. We tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, because what does Jesus say that the truth does to people who are captives? It sets them free. It sets them free. It will bring in the harvest of souls for the glory of God. So that's all we do is we tell the truth because the truth is loving and the truth is Christ. He called himself, I am the truth, the way and the life. That's what we do. That's all the woman did and a whole, her whole village becomes Christians. So we can trust the Lord to do the same in our day in McKinney, Texas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're... We're humbled, we're blown away uh, by your word. Or we look at this woman whose life was altered 180 degrees in a matter of moments. And we look at her as, as willingly sinful, wrongfully oppressed, 
and her life is changed and her eyes are locked on Christ and that's all she can talk about. After truly interacting with your son, that's all she can talk about. And you bless that simple message from an uneducated outcast to save dozens, however many were there at Sychar who came to the well. Let us have faith that the simple message of the gospel and our redeemed lives as exhibit A, let us believe that that is enough to do it. Let us not try to do your work in the world's way, but let us do your work in your way. Let us labor intensely. Father, help us to work relentlessly, not lazily, thinking that, well, you're going to just do it and, and we can sit back and watch. No, we, we work in the fields, Lord. But let us work in, in your manners, according to your methods, so that at the end of the day, when we hang up our shears, when we put down our baskets, and we're celebrating with you, the owner of the fields, we can say with all confidence, look what you did, God. Look what you did. You brought this about. And we can rejoice because all we've done is, is bring in more worshipers that you have made for yourself. And Father, we thank you for that. Thank you for receiving our worship. Father, thank you for giving us an inerrant word in a, uh, an era just like every era, swarmed with lies coming from the father of lies. Thank you for the truth. And let us be bold with the truth. Not, not uh, arrogant, not bracing, but just calm and confident that this is true and your truth does endure. And your, your truth knows no bounds and it's what sets captives free and it was what causes all true rejoicing. So Father, we look forward to that day where all we do is rejoice and all we do is worship you with all of our brothers and sisters throughout history and from all over the globe. Uh, we look forward to that. Encourage us with those words. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.